Second Corinthians chapter four, verses one to five. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bond servants, for Jesus' sake. This is where we get the title of our sermon this morning, that last sentence, Bond Servants for Jesus' Sake. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces as far as division of soul and spirit right down to the joint and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of all of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word as it is preached, and that we would be given ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit is saying to the church. O oh God, you have been our help in ages past, and you are our hope for years to come. Our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And so it is that in your name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Four years ago now, about the time I first came to Church of the Good Shepherd, Rick Warren, you heard that name? best-selling author of The Purpose Driven Life and the pastor of a very, very large church in California. One day he sat down with his wife, Kay, and the two of them together identified what they considered to be the five greatest problems in our world today. What they called the world's five giants or the five global giants. Problems so big, they said, that only the coordinated effort of worldwide network of churches could possibly solve them. And what five problems made the Warrens list? Well, as you should come to expect from somebody who hangs out with Bono at UN peace rallies, uh, Lucas, what would be on there? Lucas, is he in here? What did you say? Actually, it's not, but disease, I think that covers it. Disease and poverty are both there, right? The one campaign. And then what else? Ignorance. Got to get rid of ignorance. That's listed too. The fact that over half the world's people are still illiterate and don't even know the fundamentals of math and science. Also, and to be fair, this was number one. Spiritual darkness. The fact that billions of people still have not heard the name Jesus, let alone believed on him for salvation. So we've got our giant of poverty, our giant of disease to tackle, our giant of illiteracy, and the giant of not enough people knowing about Jesus. And what additional giant do you think that the Warrens have identified for us? Was it the giant of abortion? The fact that in the past year alone, worldwide, an estimated 42, 42 million of the world's children 
were violently murdered by their mothers in the womb with the help of medical professionals. That yesterday alone, some 115,000 babies died this way. Surely this is the other giant that they're going to mention. Or maybe it's the the giant of, of rampant sexual promiscuity outside of marriage that has given reason, excuse for this mass killing in the first place. Or perhaps it's just basically the complete sexual chaos that we face in our day. Like the headline I read yesterday that kind of sums it all up. Man of 77 years becomes woman of 77 years through surgery. Unfortunately, none of these worthy opponents made the list. The other giant for the church to conquer, according to Rick and Kay Warren, and coming in at number two, is the giant of a lack of servant leadership. You've all heard of servant leadership, right? It's almost impossible to spend any time at all in the church today without hearing about this. We've heard sermons. We've heard series of sermons about it. We've been bombarded with books and magazine articles and blog posts. We've heard Christian radio and TV broadcasts about it. If you've spent any time in the church, you've heard this and been indoctrinated by the concept of servant leadership. I say indoctrinated intentionally because the doctrine of servant leadership has become the doctrine of, of leadership in the evangelical church. It stands almost completely unchallenged, unquestioned. It man, it's managed to become such a part of our psyche, such a universal assumption with us, that we wouldn't even think to question it. But did you know that servant leadership doesn't come from Scripture? I mean, of course, it certainly does sound scriptural at face value, right? After all, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 22, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. But this philosophy of servant leadership that has permeated our evangelical mindset that has become basically now our only rule and principle of leadership, this philosophy of servant leadership it does not come from Scripture. Let me read to you about where servant leadership really does come from. This is an article from In Touch magazine called A Closer Look at Servant Leadership, written by three Christian seminary professors. And you need to know that this is a pro-servant leadership article. These authors are trying to kind of explain away some of the confusion that seems to uh, that Christians seem to have about the concept, but generally their, their idea here is to promote servant leadership. They say, the term servant leadership finds its genesis in the North American marketplace of the late 1960s and early 1970s. North America, marketplace, not the church, marketplace, late 60s, early 70s. That should be a tip-off. Prior to the 1960s, pressures in the marketplace were met by tighter management, more demands on employees, stronger unions, 
more clearly defined jobs and stiffer regulations, all of which resulted in greater output and a greater share in the global marketplace. These measures, however, were no longer having their intended effect. Mechanistic systems and hierarchical institutions were not thriving. Dissatisfaction with traditional command and control leadership was rampant. America, 1960s and 70s, dissatisfaction, rampant. Like, duh. Enter Robert Greenleaf and George McGregor Burns, businessmen who suggested the need for a new kind of leadership that would place greater value on autonomy and human dignity. The personal integration of higher order complex values was needed. Can anybody explain to me what that is? I've asked some very smart people this week and they didn't know. Creating environments with self-initiating and self-responsible leaders and followers. The phrase that eventually came to mark this paradigm shift was servant leadership. So a new kind of leadership, a paradigm shift, greater emphasis on autonomy and self. Now listen very carefully to how the authors describe the characteristics of servant leadership. Servant leadership, as Greenleaf and others defined it, involves interdependent governance, by teams of peers who reach shared decisions based on agreed-upon values. Just imagine if our military were run that way. Interdependent governance by teams of peers who reach shared decisions based on agreed-upon values. So it's like D-Day, and there's a boatload of troops, and they're headed for the beach, and the servant leader in charge says, okay, guys, the suggestion I had from my servant leader in charge was that once we get to the beach, we drop the door immediately and that we all run um, up the beach towards the big machine guns that are killing thousands of people every second and that we try to take those machine guns out. Now, just a quick show of hands. Who thinks that that is going to be our best approach to this project. Oh, interesting, Kenny. I saw. I just noticed that you didn't raise your hand. Um, why don't you just, just as an exercise, um, explain to us uh, how you feel we should approach this? I mean, imagine. Servant leaders investigate, listen, and guide community members. The structures of a servant leadership environment are non-hierarchical. They're warm, inclusive, and instrumental. We and us is the norm, not I or my. As Max Dupree says, Max Dupree wrote a book, I think, called The Art uh, Leadership as an Art, and was also the son of a very wealthy businessman. Servant leadership is a calling to, quote, design build, and serve inclusive communities by liberating human spirit and potential. What does all this tell us? It tells us that servant leadership did not originate with Scripture. Instead, it came from the world of business, from corporate America. And it wasn't born in a vacuum. 
It was conceived in response to something. And what was it a response to? Well, remember, this was the 60s and 70s. And what was going on in the Western world at that time? Some of you are alive and know firsthand. All hell was breaking loose, right? We had political anarchy, sexual anarchy, just plain old anarchy, anarchy. It was a time of massive cultural upheaval, of revolution, and unleashed outright flagrant rebellion on all fronts. So it should be no surprise that the article says that a dissatisfaction with traditional forms of leadership was rampant in the marketplace in those days. That's obvious. Remember, this was the generation that presided over the death of God. And having accomplished that feat, do you think they'd stop there? No, naturally, they'd also want to get rid of every reminder of God's existence left in the world. Every symbol of his authority. Here's what Nietzsche, who had prophesied of this generation about a hundred years before, this is what he said. God is dead, but given the way of men, there may still be caves for thousands of years in which his shadow will be shown. And we, we still have to vanquish his shadow, too. What does he mean by God's shadow? What he means is that we killed God. Now what we have to do is get rid of the evidence. So, in other words, we have to get rid of the king, the judge, the husband, and the boss. Because we know from Scripture that each of these positions of authority are representations of, to us of God's authority. As is, in the case, as is the case with the relationship of husband over wife. And as Romans 13 tells us, it's the case with all authorities that are above us. It calls them ministers of God for our good. But modern man wants to be rid of them all because modern man cannot stand the sight or the thought of God. So, the way the boss is being done in is by a total rewriting of his role. What did the article say? Today's worker demands shared decision-making and interdependent governance by teams of peers. He wants autonomy. He wants self-initiation, self-responsibility. He wants rid of hierarchy. He wants to be investigated, listened to, guided. He wants warmth and inclusivity. He wants his human spirit and potential liberated. In other words, he wants everybody to appreciate just how uniquely special he is. He demands that either everybody or nobody is boss. And servant leadership was created to scratch precisely this itch. Servant leaders are not leaders. We've taken our leaders in the world of business and we've turned them into ego messieurs. Their job is to go around making everybody feel loved and appreciated so that they'll be more productive, so that the company will make money. Or at least that's the idea. Tell me, America, how's that working out these days? 
Have you ever considered that this ailing economy might be God's judgment on our nation's wholesale rejection of His authority? That we are now reaping the fruit that our rebellion has sown? But thankfully, we don't have to worry, right? As Christians. Thankfully, thankfully, the church has stood her ground against this authority-hating culture. She's faithfully remained a shining city on a hill that could not be hid. She's been that salt that has not lost its savor. She's wanted nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather she's worked tirelessly night and day in exposing them. She's been quick to recognize the gaps in the wall and to call all her warriors to fight hardest right there. In a society that claims the uncertainty of any truth, she has proclaimed the absolute certainty of coming judgment to any who refuse to bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. In a culture that hates distinctions, hates every semblance of hierarchical authority, the church has consistently professed and maintained the biblical doctrines of male headship as ordained by God from all creation. In a world that hates every type of discipline, any form of the word no, pastors and elders and deacons and Titus II women have continued consistently to follow Scripture's commands to contend earnestly for the faith. And they've defended the flock against all wolves, even when it has cost them their reputations and life. Isn't that wonderful? It would be wonderful if it were true. But unfortunately, somewhere along the line, we got confused and started thinking that cultural engagement was something that we should do with rings, not swords. We've engaged our culture all right. Our approach to church these days is to poll the audience to find out what they want and then to give it to them. And what do our audience polls tell us? They tell us that what people really want these days is anonymity. They want to be left alone. They don't want pastors and elders who poke their noses around uninvited. So we give them churches where nobody has to know anybody. It's just in and out, just like McDonald's. And we've learned that people are sick and tired of hearing about sin all the time and hell and judgment. They just want to be encouraged. So we've changed the gospel message of those first sermons after Jesus' resurrection. The gospel message of Peter, be saved from this perverse generation by repentance. To the much more palatable, you know God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life. And all this is, is us succumbing to the hatred of authority and the idolatry of self that surrounds us in our post-Enlightenment and post-French Revolution, post-1960s cultural climate. So that the culture won't hate us, but rather think we're cool. 
But of course, we could never admit that this is what we're doing, could we? No, we'd have to make it a principle of some kind. We'd have to give it some pious, spiritual-sounding name. We'd have to call it something like servant leadership, a term by which our leaders have been reduced to nothing more than facilitators, life coaches, cheerleaders to help us fulfill our every ambition. And this is the day Paul warned us about in 2 Timothy 4.3 when he said that the time would come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. I want to give us today a very, very tangible and current example of what servant leadership has reduced the gospel ministry in this country to. This is from an article published in World Magazine that was discussed on Pastor Bailey's blog this week. It's an article about the recent fall of South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford. Have you heard about what happened to Mr. Sanford? Jenna and I were in Charleston the week that this story broke. Governor Sanford basically disappeared for six days. He told his staff that he was going to be hiking alone on the Appalachian Trail. Well, he turns up he was turns out he was gone longer than expected or something. Suddenly the police got involved in looking for him. It was quite a emergency. And a reporter, I believe, spotted him in the airport. And of course he then had to confess what was going on. And turns out he had flown to Argentina to meet up with a woman he was having an extramarital affair with. So World Magazine, sniffing up the right tree, called, or called Greg, uh, sorry, Governor Sanford's pastor, Greg Surratt, pastor of a very, very large church in Charleston. And this is what Pastor Surratt said. He said his congregation is heartbroken over Sanford's fall, but then he declined to discuss whether he had known about the governor's infidelity before his press conference. And you know, of course he didn't. Surat said he will help the Sanfords if they desire his help. To which Pastor Bailey rhetorically asked, if they desire his help, is this the new standard for pastoral care in the evangelical church? The answer to that question is, of course, yes. This is, the, this is the standard of pastoral care. I'm just here to help. If you want my help, I mean, I'm just here. Come. Uh, probably only knew Governor Sanford because you can't, know, can't not know Governor Sanford in a church of 10,000. It's the kind of care... This kind of care, it's the kind of care that, that we demand from, the, from uh, pastors when they get out of seminary. It's the kind of care they're taught to give us when they're in seminary. It's a care where we, not they, set the boundaries and the parameters. We draw the line where we want it to be. This far, pastor, and no further. This far, elder, no further. You're only allowed over here if I initiate and invite. 
And even when, you, when you've gotten here, you'd better be careful what you say to me. I know how to make you pay for it. Now, at this point, I hope you're wondering what this has to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Very nice rant. What does it have to do with the Bible? Well, Paul, notice that Paul begins our passage with the words, Therefore, since we have this ministry. And this points us back to chapter 3, where he's just given us an eloquent description of the gospel that he's been entrusted with. He tells us that it is of the new covenant, verse 6, and that this new covenant is different from the old in some significant ways. The old covenant, he says, was a ministry of death written in letters engraved on stone, verse 7, whereas this new covenant is of the Spirit, and the Spirit gives life. He calls it the ministry of righteousness, verse 9. And he tells us that while the old covenant was indeed glorious, having a glory so bright that the people couldn't even stand to look at Moses' face after he received it, this new covenant, he says, is even more glorious still. So much more glorious that it completely obliterates the glory of the old. Just as the brightness of our sun outshines the stars during the day. That's what Dave Abuzara said when he preached this text. Finally, Paul indicates that the old covenant is fading away, while the new covenant, of which he's a minister, will shine for all time. Verse 11. This is the gospel Paul has been given. And whereas chapter 3 gives us this vivid explanation of that gospel proper, chapter 4 provides us with an equally vivid description of the gospel ministry. In other words, what men like Paul do with the gospel when it's given them. And in this description of what Paul says he and his fellow ministers do with the gospel, he says, verse 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And when Paul says this, what we inevitably think, because of all that we've been taught about leadership today, is that Paul is advocating here servant leadership. And what I'm desperate for us all to see this morning is that nothing could be further from the truth. What Paul is teaching us here flies completely in the face of this very modern concept. What Paul is advocating is not servant leadership, but rather faithful gospel ministry. Let's look together at our passage to see what Paul says gospel ministry is. The first thing Paul teaches us here about faithful ministers is that they have their ministry by God's mercy. Do you see that? Verse 1, Paul says, Since we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Faithful ministers do not cop postures of humility in front of people in order to impress them or manipulate them or get them to do whatever they want them to do. Gospel ministers are genuinely, authentically humble, knowing and mourning the depths of their sin. And yet they find that not only has God forgiven them their sin, casting it away as far as the east is from the west, but He has chosen also to honor them above all men 
with an honor that is highest in this world. Athletes who compete well are given trophies of gold, which tarnish with age, right? But God has entrusted to our care a thing more glorious than the sun is bright, a message that will never, ever fade away, but only increases in its beauty. True gospel ministers know well these words of Psalm 130. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Faithful ministers tremble before God, being well acquainted with his mercy to them. Servant leaders caught postures of false humility for the sake of employee manipulation. Secondly, Paul says that faithful ministers draw on their knowledge of God's mercy to keep them from giving up the ministry. Do you see that? He says, since we have this mercy by the mercy, this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Lose heart, Paul? Why should we lose heart? Is there something discouraging about the ministry? I thought it was supposed to be glorious, not a downer. Do things go wrong often for you, Paul? According to the rules of servant leadership, Paul, the leader has only himself to blame for lack of success. We will come back to this question that Paul raises here for us of why he should be tempted to lose heart. Because we haven't yet seen enough of what he's saying to navigate a good answer. Suffice it to say for now that when such temptations come, Paul fixes his eyes firmly on the grace shown to him by God. And where do the eyes of servant leaders always gaze? Me and you. It's all me and you. That is their whole reality. It's how we doing? How we feeling? How are you feeling? That's servant leadership. Now, the third thing Paul tells us is that faithful ministers, and you ready for this? Faithful ministers will not respect your desire for privacy. Wait a second. Where does he say that? Look at verse 2. He says, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Now, this is a little tricky to translate from the Greek, this sentence. I didn't really know what to do with it. But I take Paul to mean at least two things here. One, that faithful ministers, faithful ministers do not pretend to be sinless men. They don't keep their skeletons buried away in a closet somewhere. They don't hide their sins behind shiny veneers. And they don't live separate from their flocks. They don't pretend to be something they're not. They live their lives out in the light where you can and I can see them. Where their weaknesses and faults are known and visible in all their glory. Faithful shepherds are known by their sheep. 
not just for their strengths, but also for their weaknesses. This is the first thing I take away from what Paul says when he says we have renounced things hidden because of shame. The other side to this is that good ministers make our secrets their business. As physicians of the soul, it is their responsibility to know us intimately. And so good shepherds will study their sheep. They'll poke around at their personalities and they'll, until they can get a good handle on their particular weaknesses and sin tendencies. And then they'll have a good go at that with all their might for the rest of their life. And not because we ask them to, mind you, but because we are their work given to them by God, entrusted to their care. It is their job before God to bring the hidden deeds of darkness out into the light so that we too can repent with them and enjoy God's mercy and the peace of a clear conscience. Therefore, good ministers make our secret sins their business. That's very intrusive, isn't it? No servant leader would ever be caught dead. Fourthly, Paul says that faithful ministers do not bring dull tools to their work. Look at verse 2. He says, Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the clear manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What does Hebrews 4.12 say about God's Word? That it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of what? Of the heart. The heart is where our secrets are kept. That's what Scripture tells us. And you can see then from this verse, just how useful God's word is to the faithful minister who works to remove sin from the hearts of his people. It's sharp, first of all, and it cuts like nothing else can, right down to the required depth, the heart. It's the perfect tool for the job if used faithfully. But Paul seems to be indicating here in verse 2 that this is not always done. He's describing his own work in contrast to that of others who apparently do walk in craftiness and do adulterate the Word of God. Now, what would that look like? And what might be the motivation to do that? Well, it would look like taking the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and reforging it, reshaping it into any number of kinder, gentler utensils. You can't just round off the edge. I mean, you can just round off the edge a little, right? Until you've got yourself not a sword any longer, but a butter knife. Which, of course, couldn't do half the damage of that sword. And if you're really clever, and I mean really clever, you can take the sword and turn it into one of those smiley face back massager things. And then you can go around giving people a really nice 
relaxing feeling. But what would be the motivation for a minister to do such a thing with what God has given? Well, the key is that phrase of Paul's commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's talking here about one of the most important techniques in wielding the sword of the Spirit faithfully. That is, applying that word to the conscience. Now, most of you, I'm sure, have had this little maneuver performed on you before. Tell me, what did that feel like? It was very painful, wasn't it? Having God's word applied to the conscience. And how does the conscience respond to the wound? Well, if your conscience is not completely dead already, if it's even somewhat alive, it usually tries to fight back with everything it's got. And it's got a lot. It's got all kinds of excuses and caveats and rejections and accusations and dismissals and justifications. And these very quickly and easily bring forth from the flesh resentment, and anger, and hatred, and malice, and strife, even murder. And who receives the brunt of this retaliation but the one who faithfully loved us in telling us the truth? And so now we're beginning to see the answer to our question from earlier about why there would be temptation to grow discouraged in the ministry. Verse 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What's he alluding to there? He's alluding to the fact that very many, 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 many people have rejected him for what he's told them. For the gospel that he's preached and applied to their conscience. That's what he's talking about when he says, even if the gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Those are those, those are they who have rejected Paul. But not just any kind of rejection, right? A rejection that spit on him, ridiculed him, slapped him, stripped him, beat him, slandered him, run him out of town, whipped him imprisoned him, stoned him, and left him for dead. That kind of rejection. And so, you see, real temptation to lose heart does exist in the ministry. Because faithful ministers always, always suffer for their faithfulness. And the more faithful they are, the more they suffer. And you can see why it would be so easy to just dull the blade a little bit. Pull your punch once in a while. Or why it might be tempting for some ministers to give up their spiritual warfare altogether and exchange it for a job in spiritual massaging. Now again, servant leadership would say that this rejection Paul encountered is his failure. That Paul just didn't present right. Or that he shouldn't have focused so much on the negatives. Or that he set the holiness bar too high. But what does Paul say about that? Paul, 
who looks only to God for his validation and comfort, just shrugs his shoulders and says, eh, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see. He says, you know, they're, they're spiritually blind. These are the things that blind hearts do to ministers of the gospel. It should be no surprise. I myself used to be one of them. And still would be had not God shown mercy in lifting the veil from my eyes. They are to be pitied, not feared. The fifth and last thing that Paul says about faithful ministers is that their ministries are characterized always by faithfulness to the hardest doctrines of Scripture. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Remember back in the article about servant leadership that it listed inclusivity, inclusivity as one of the demands of the modern worker. Well, Paul says, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. And that's pretty much the death of their inclusivity. You can preach Christ Jesus as Savior, And many of the staunchest atheists will sit and listen very politely, amused, perhaps pitying you for your ignorance, but polite. You can preach Christ Jesus as prophet. And you'll start to upset a few people who prefer to think of Jesus only as a soft-spoken moral teacher and refuse to look at those places where he spoke the truth, he himself, to people. But if you go around proclaiming Christ Jesus as Lord, as the one who sits in supreme authority over all his creation, that all things belong to him, that nothing escapes his power, that there is nothing that has been made that was not made by him, that he is the king of the climate, he's the king of conception, of sexuality, of government, of the church, then get ready. People will foam at the mouth and they'll cuss you out and drive you out of town. But faithful ministers know That it is right at those places that God is most often pleased to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That God is pleased to use them in their brokenness and their weakness and their humility and their shame and their pain to do the work of building His kingdom. God will receive all glory And he uses his ministers and his elders to be his fools so that he is glorified. I hope you can see the drastic difference between godly gospel ministry and servant leadership. I know that Most of you have no problem seeing it because you've heard this before. 
is nothing new to you. And why is it nothing new to you? Do you realize? It's nothing new to you because everything Paul says about this passage is true of your pastors and your elders. They have suffered in order to love you. They've suffered at your hands. They've suffered with their reputations. They've suffered with their names. They've suffered with their bank accounts in order to love you. And so I fear that that we should take that for granted. I see that it's tempting for me, and I suspect for you, that, that it's, it's tempting to look at this church as a kind of like roaring bonfire of faithfulness in this world. You know? Like a, a grand sea of some kind. But we live in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And so a little puddle looks like a lot. This is just a little, little flickering candle in the wind. To get all sentimental. And think how easily a little candle is blown out by a puff of air. We must not take this for granted. To you, our current pastors and elders, I'd say only what Paul says he did. Look to Jesus Christ and God's mercy in giving you this ministry to remain faithful. To our church, I would say, since this is the kind of leaders that God has told us are good, these are the kinds of leaders we ought to want. These are the kinds of leaders we ought to honor. We, these are the kinds of leaders we ought to be feel privileged to serve under and love. And we ought to give them every encouragement and love and sign of appreciation that we can think of. They do hard work for us. And it's exhausting and painful. And to our young men and young women, I would say, Someday this church is going to be yours. And what's it going to be like? Some, someday it's all going to fall on your lap. My lap, your lap, Danny, if you're still here. And will we be anything like what we have? And what will it take for that to be the case? Some of us will have to give up youthful lusts, childish games. Some of us will have to learn. Some of us will have to go to the pastor's college. But this is, this is something that must happen. We ought to do everything we can to help that bonfire be so, and to help other bonfires be lit. 
Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are, are grateful for your word. We're grateful for its ministry. Thank you, Father, for your wisdom and kindness in giving it to us. Thank you, Father, that you have given us men and women who will love us, who will love us at great cost to themselves, who have given their life, who have taken jobs in Bloomington that they did not love so that they could stay here and serve this church. Father, help us as those who are coming up behind them to love the church half as much as they do. Help us, Father, to stand rather upon their shoulders and to serve you with all our might. We pray these things in your name. Amen.